Sands of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. We are back with another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Had a lot of fun last week speaking with some of the Lions of Liberty contributors. Had a great interview with Chris Rossini. And then the debut of our whiskey chat with John Odermatt and Brian McWilliams. But now that I'm fully recovered from that, it's time to get back down to this nitty-gritty libertarian stuff. Today we're going to talk about Austrian economics with a true expert in the field. Someone whose writing I've been a huge fan of over the years. He's not afraid to take controversial positions. Not afraid to challenge the positions of other libertarians. In other words, for those that follow us on our website, lionsofliberty.com, he's our kind of guy. He is the author of numerous books and scholarly works, including Defending the Undefendable and the Privatization of Roads and Highways. He is currently a professor and chair of economics at Loyola University in New Orleans. Dr. Walter Block, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And it's a pleasure to have you on here today. You've been a big influence of mine over the years, really been enjoying your work. Before we get into today's subject, which is Austrian economics, we really want to delve into it with you. You are an expert on the subject. I'm sure my listeners out there are wondering, at least I am, how did this all start for you? How did you first become involved in the libertarian movement, and how did that lead to Austrian economics becoming the study of your life's work? Well, I first got into libertarianism uh, when Ayn Rand came to Brooklyn College, and I came to brew and hiss her because she favored free enterprise, and I, along with every other Jewish, uh, liberal, uh, Democrat, progressive commie in Brooklyn at the time, this must have been 1963 or so, opposed free enterprise and capitalism because it meant, you know, starvation in the streets and all. And after her lecture, uh, I hadn't got enough booing and hissing at her, and they announced the Ayn Rand study group or whoever invited her there said that they were having a lunch in her honor, and anyone could come, even if you disagreed. So I came. I wanted to get her more and show her that she was wrong. The setting was a big, long table, maybe 50 people on each side, and Ayn Rand was sitting at the head of the table, and Peacock and Brandon and uh, Greenspan and a few of her lieutenants were next to her. And I was relegated to the foot of the table, about 50 or 100 feet away from her. And I turned to my neighbor and I said, you know, this capitalism stuff is all wrong. Socialism is the way to go. And he said, well, the people that really know about it are not me, but at the other end of the table. So I went and I stuck my head between Orange and Nathan's. And I said, this is socialist here who wants to debate someone on socialism versus capitalism. And I said, oh, who is it? And I said, me. <laughs> and I was, uh, you know, a senior in college then, and, you know, they were quite a bit older than me, maybe 10 and 20 years older than me. Uh, but I was pushy then, uh, still am. And Brandon was very, very nice. He said, look, I'll come to the other end of the table and I'll talk to you about this under two conditions. One, you have to promise that you won't allow this conversation to lapse after one shot. And two, you'll read two books that I recommend to you. Well, I kept my promise, and the two books were Atlas Shrugged and Economics and One Lesson by Henry Hasliff, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, of course. And I went to his house in Ayn Rand's apartment in Manhattan, and uh, oh, maybe four or five or six times, and I brought my roommates, and we discussed it, and I was converted. Then I went to the Nathaniel Brandon Institute meetings, but it was sort of cultish for my taste. You know, if you could ask Ayn Rand an easy question and she would answer it, but if you asked her a tough one, she'd kick you out of the auditorium, so it wasn't very uh, scholarly or open, very cultish, actually. And then I was sort of wallowing around. I'd go back every once in a while because they were the only libertarians I knew, and you know. but then I had this sort of approach avoidance thing. 
And then I was in graduate school in uh, Columbia, and uh, Larry Moss and Jerry Wallows, uh, his roommate, uh, convinced me to meet this crazy man, Murray Rothbard, who believed in anarchism, which is obviously wrong, because, you know, I was sort of an Ayn Randian, even though I didn't like her personally. And I met Murray, and in about five minutes, he converted me to free enterprise anarchism. Then, under his tutelage, I got into uh, Austrian economics. That took a little longer because I had, uh, you know, uh, an investment in mainstream economics. I was a graduate student in Columbia, and they didn't teach any Austrianism there. So that's the quick and dirty story of how I got into it. It's really interesting because there are not many people around that can probably say that Maria Rothbard personally, you know, in an in a individual way, got them interested in Austrian economics. What was it like knowing Maria Rothbard? And I believe you even met Ludwig von Mises as well. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I once shook hands with Ludwig von Mises, and I never washed that hand. <laughs> Be careful shaking hands with Dr. Block. Uh, well, I smell a little bit, but uh, you can channel Mises for me. My main reaction to Murray Rothbard is stomach cramps. Uh, <laughs> he would just keep you laughing for hour after hour. I mean, I almost died laughing several times. He was very, very funny, very witty. We had wonderful times. I was part of his living room group. There were about, oh, ten of us or so. And we were just cackling about the state and, you know, uh, and the situation and uh, Austrian economics and libertarian theory and, you know, should we have a libertarian party? This was before the advent of the party in 1971. So that's my main recollection of Murray, and obviously I benefited from him in many other ways than laughing with him, but... He was my friend. Uh, he was my mentor. I, I uh, love Murray. I, I'm a big fan of his. I think the world of him. I just want to ask you again about Ayn Rand for a second, because it seems almost every interview I do uh, with a libertarian, Ayn Rand comes up either in a positive light or a negative light, and it all kind of seems to tie in somewhere or another, whether it pissed someone off or it got them first interested in libertarianism in the first place. But you mentioned before that her movement kind of seemed like a cult, and I wrote about this recently, how Murray Rothbard viewed the Ayn Rand movement, how it turned into a cult. How do you think that happened? Since you kind of saw it unfold in person, what did you see that really stood out to you as making it cultish? And how exactly did people like you and Murray Rothbard essentially get excommunicated from that movement or that group? Well, uh, before I answer that question, I'm a professor. I'm not allowed to answer questions directly. I have to go circuitously. Of course. Let me just say, you said that some people were pro, some people were con. Well, I'm different. I'm schizophrenic. <laughs> I'm both pro and con. Um, I'm very pro her ideas. I think Atlas Shrugged is the best novel ever written by far. I think it's just magnificent. I've read it uh, when I was a kid, uh, 1963, and I've read it every 10 years again, and I get more out of it every time I do. And I uh, assign it to my classes. I think that book is magnificent. Uh, I think her promotion of capitalism and free enterprise is nothing short of magnificent. So that's the pro side. And also, I owe her personally. She uh, personally, along with um, Nathaniel Brennan, uh, converted me to the one true faith. On the other hand, it is cultish. It was cultish. It still is under Picoffians. I mean, I never got excommunicated, but I wasn't important enough to be excommunicated. I was on the outer fringes. Murray was excommunicated, but I saw other excommunications going on. And you don't have any excommunications from libertarianism or, well, I don't know, certain religions do excommunicate you, but libertarianism is not a cult. Austrianism is not a cult. We don't excommunicate any, uh, anyone out, uh, kick them out. Uh, we disagree. I've said that other people really aren't libertarians on certain issues, but, you know, that's just me talking. What do I know? I don't know. The people, for example, David Bowes or um, Randy Barnett, people like that that I've seriously disagreed with, and I said that they're not libertarians on that issue. Uh, they are on many other issues, of course. 
So we can disagree with each other, but we can't excommunicate each other. Uh, that's just impossible, and even if it were possible, uh, nobody ever did it. Nobody does it. So libertarianism and Austrianism are not cults, but Randianism is because you get excommunicated, you're off the mailing list, and they won't allow you to come to their uh, uh, seminars. And I don't mean if you're disruptive, you know, just from politely asking a, a critical or even a hostile question. Whereas uh, I revel in hostile questions or critical questions because how else are we going to convert people to the one true faith unless we're willing and able to deal with the hard cases? My book, Defending the Undefendable, was an attempt to deal with the, the very hard cases. You know, how does libertarianism answer this? How does it answer that? If we can't answer those things, uh, we don't deserve to be a movement. Exactly. And if you can't sort out kind of differences between your own movement, how on earth are you ever going to convince people that have drastically different beliefs, you know, pure status or people that want a huge government? So I agree. It's very important to be doing within our own movement. It's not excommunication just to ask questions. You know, it's, it only becomes that when it gets kind of, you're not a libertarian, you can't talk to us. Now, Getting more into uh, Austrian economics, it is Austrian economics and libertarianism are often linked together. You'll see many libertarians touting the merits of Austrian economics, and you know many Austrian economics end up taking very libertarian positions on things. Why exactly is this? What is the link between Austrian economics and libertarianism? Well, in one sense, there's absolutely no link. There's a chasm between them, because Austrian economics is a positive science. It's an attempt to understand and explain economic reality. It totally eschews any should statements of the sort like, we should have a minimum wage, or we shouldn't have a minimum wage, or we should have the Fed, or we shouldn't have the Fed, or we should have central planning, or we shouldn't have central planning. Uh, Austrian economics, qua Austrian economics, can't say that. All they can say is, look, these are the effects of the minimum wage. These are the effects of the Fed. These are the effects of uh, central planning. And whether you want to adopt it or not is an A-Austrian or an A-economic question, a non-economic question. On the other hand, libertarianism is not a theory of what causes what and how do we explain and understand reality. It's a normative science. It's a, a science that says, look... Uh, the only uh, proper way to be, the only ethical way, the only moral way to be is to adhere to the non-aggression axiom and uh, private property rights based on homesteading. So the, the twain shall never meet, the, the two shall never meet, because they're different universes of discourse. One talks about should statements, the other talks about causation. And you know, look, I can say the minimum wage law creates unemployment for unskilled workers, as an Austrian, and then as a non-libertarian, I could say, and I favor the minimum wage because I hate unskilled workers, and I want to see them unemployed. <laughs> okay, so in the philosophical sense, they are totally different and distinct, and never the, the two shall be in the same conversation. And yet, we still hear them in the same conversation. Yeah. All the and uh, I think the best attempt to uh, bridge this gap was made by Tom Woods at uh, the most recent Mises University, which I highly recommend, not only Mises University, which is just one of their week-long seminars, but the entire Mises Institute. And what Tom said is, you know, virtually all Austrians are libertarians, although some of the early Austrians in the um, 20th, uh, early 20th century were Nazis, you know, so they weren't uh, libertarians, but they were good economists. So you don't have to be a libertarian, but virtually all present-day Austrians thanks to the influence of Murray Rothbard, are libertarians. And many, many libertarians, well, a lot of libertarians are not economists at all, so they can't be Austrians or even against Austrians. But, you know, they're a plumber or a philosopher or, I don't know, a musician, and they just like liberty, but they're not really that up on, on economics, just a little bit. 
But yet, uh, there is this uh, overlap, this, this gigantic overlap, and this is exactly what Tom Woods adjusts himself to. And what he says is that, well, you know, the Austrian view of uh, the business cycle is that uh, government caused it. And the Austrian um, view of central planning is that uh, it leads to uh, non-prosperity. It leads to, uh, to chaos. And, and most people don't like depressions. Most people, most people don't like, what do you call it, economic chaos. Most people don't like unemployment. And yet the farmers of the Austrian school are invariably with some exceptions, and we have to root them out of Austrianism, invariably that every problem is caused by government. So I think that's why there's this overlap. For example, uh, Mises, I think, was a little weak on antitrust uh, and monopoly. He thought that you could have this market failure monopoly on the free enterprise system, and Murray Rothbard in his man economy and state uh, corrected Mises on that. And so we had some impurity in Austrian economics, namely this mistake in the positive analysis of uh, antitrust and monopoly, and Murray Rothbard fixed that up. So what's the view of Austrians on antitrust law? Well, as I was saying, you, they have no view as to whether we should have it or not, but they do have a view that the reason we have monopoly has got nothing to do with the free enterprise system. I kind of see it as, you know, maybe you're a scientist and you discover a huge asteroid coming towards the Earth, now, that doesn't mean that you necessarily want to stop that asteroid from coming towards the Earth. Maybe you hate the Earth and everyone on it, so you're fine with the asteroid destroying us. But most people that, you know, do find out about this asteroid or do start to understand Austrian economics will end up maybe taking libertarian positions wanting to stop that, that asteroid from crashing down and destroying us. That's very good. That's a very, very good analogy. And I would just substitute government for the asteroid. Uh, we Austrians say that the asteroid government is destroying us uh, and as libertarians, we say, well, we don't like it. <laughs> we don't want it. And most people don't want it when they understand that the government or this meteor asteroid is going to get us. The economics trick is to uh, tell people and convince them that the government really is like an asteroid. And the, the libertarian thing is to get them to oppose asteroids. Uh, that is one that crash into the Earth anyway. A lot of people are economically illiterate, like Krugman, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and he thinks that government can help the economy. And what we've got to do is uh, convert Krugman and Krugmanites and pretty much convert everyone to the economic understanding that government doesn't help the economy, or it, it just creates chaos. Well, Walter, just like you didn't shake Mises' hand for all these years, I will not wash these headphones that I heard Walter Block endorse my analogy on, because <laughs> if Walter Block endorses my analogy, I know it must have been all right. Well, it's a very good analogy. Thank you. Now, you're really good at breaking down kind of some of the differences amongst libertarians. We have minarchists, we also have anarchists. Can you kind of get into those differences a little bit and explain why you identify with the former group, with an anarchist group. Yes, well, I see four groups that I would call libertarians or quasi-libertarians. At the top of the list are anarcho-capitalists like Murray Rothbard, who believe that government is per se an invasive force, and uh, we should not have any government, we should have anarchism, which is not chaos or bomb-throwing, God forbid, it's just absence of archy, and archy is unjustified rule, and the prefix and just means against. So we're against archy and archy, and archy just, as I say, means unjustifiable rule. And Murray Rothbard would be most associated with that, and uh, certainly Hans Hoppe and me and many of the people at the Mises Institute are associated with that view, certainly Lou Rockwell. Right under that comes what's called minarchism, minimal government archism or minimal government uh, support, 
and Ayn Rand and Nozick. Robert Nozick, I think, will be most associated with that view. And that view, or at least Nozick 1, Nozick 2 went crazy. That view is uh, there's only one legitimate role for government, and that's to protect persons and property uh, of its uh, citizens and residents. And to that end, you only need three institutions, armies, to keep foreign bad guys off of us, not to go exporting democracy and exporting imperialism, police uh, to keep local bad guys off of us, murderers and rapists, not to uh, put people in jail for victimless crimes like uh, sex or drugs or whatever, and a third courts to determine who the good guys and the bad guys are. And I think that's the second highest uh, form of libertarianism. Uh, the third highest form, uh, and this one would be associated with uh, Ron Paul, not Rand Paul, but Ron Paul. I make a fine distinction here, not a fine, a very short distinction. And this is sort of constitutional libertarianism, where obviously you need armies, courts, and police, uh, but you also need everything else that the Constitution says, because they're constitutionalists. And they're pretty limited, but uh, they are distinct from the Randians. And then the fourth group, which are hardly libertarians, but I'm going to include them because I'm a, a big tent kind of a guy, uh, are people like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, who sometimes in my bad moods I say don't, they don't deserve the honorific of libertarian. Uh, Rand Paul would be included in this group. And they add so many, many other things to the, the minarchist or the constitutional stuff, all sorts of things, you know. Uh, welfare and uh, the Fed and uh, God knows what. Uh, just dozens of things. You have to be nice and, and you can't discriminate. Uh, this is uh, uh, Dave Bowes' contribution. So these people are a sort of libertarians because they, you know, they're very free enterprise. I mean, look, Rand Paul is the most uh, libertarian person in the Senate or in the Congress, uh, but he's only in this fourth category. So that's how I would see the, the makeup. That's how I see the ball players. Uh, and that's my scorecard for the ball players in the libertarian movement. And no one can accuse Walter Block of not being a big tent guy or of being a cultist, because he'll even include the guy who invented the payroll tax withholding, Milton Friedman. Even he gets under yeah. under Doctor Block's tent. So I don't want to hear any accusations of any any cult stuff over here. Right. Although at, at, in my bad moves, I sometimes say he's not a libertarian, but I'm I'm in a big tent mood today, so I'm going to prove it. Gotcha. So. Now, you identify as an anarcho-capitalist. You go all the way, as they say. Yeah. Now, how did you get to that position? Were you there immediately once you were like, once you had your five minutes with Murray? Or was it really further understanding of Austrian economics? Is that what kind of showed you that, okay, even these other things could somehow be handled by a free market? No, no. It was a five or ten minute speech. And <laughs> what, uh, what Murray did, he sort of really shook me up. Boy, did he shake me up. What he did is he used the Hazlitt kind of arguments on me, and I was a good Hazlittian. I, I'm a big fan of Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. I also use that in my courses. And uh, one of the main things of Henry Hazlitt was this uh, market process kind of thing or weeding out inefficiency. Look, if you're in the business of making shoes and you don't make good shoes, uh, your competitors will beat you out, and eventually you have to go bankrupt, and you'll have to get into something else that uh, you're better at say, interviewing people <laughs> better than right. shoes. And that's why we have pretty good shoes. And the same for carrots and chocolate and uh, cars and everything else, as long as government doesn't bail anyone out. And what Murray said is, well, why can't we apply that to police, armies, and courts? And once he said that, it was not even a five-minute conversion. It was you know, like a 15-second conversion. Once he said that, the, the light bulb sort of went off over my head, and I immediately I... I moved into this Hazlitt uh, analysis. Now, obviously, there are complications, you know, of the monopoly, 
uh, there were, uh, it's not that simple. But in my mind, the, the light bulb just lit up, and I could see, yes, if we had competing courts or competing police or competing defense agencies, it might not be perfect, but it would be a lot better than uh, having a monopoly. Look, if we want to be protected, where are you safer, in, in Disney World, where they have private cops, or in uh, Audubon Park, which is across the street from me in New Orleans? Well, obviously, in Disney World, because uh, if somebody gets murdered or raped or stolen from in Disney World, you know, people won't go there. And the owners of Disney World or Disneyland uh, will lose money and they'll have to go broke. And this will firm them up and they'll, you know, do all sorts of good things, like have cameras there and have ducks and geese with packing heat and act obstreperously, they'll stop you. Whereas in Audubon Park or Central Park or on the city streets, suppose a murder or a rape occurs there. Who loses money that's in a position to, to stop anything? Uh, Thomas Sowell once said very famously, as a famous, I don't have the exact quote, but it's a really stupid system to put people in charge of things who don't lose any money uh, by making mistakes. And yet that's what government is. When something occurs bad on the government, they don't go broke. The post office keeps on going like a, like a zombie. Or who are those dead people? Ghouls? I don't know. <laughs> Zombies, that's them. Zombies. I mean, you know, you just can't get rid of it because they just, you know, uh, throw tax money at it. Whereas if a private enterprise, the uh, Packard goes bad or DeSoto or whatever it is, I don't know, Kodak, for example, they're no longer with us because they could no longer satisfy customers. So Murray's insight in that 15 seconds was, well, this thing applies to government too. You know, why do you make such a uh, stupid exception? And once I saw that, it was very, very clear to me. Well, that's a, that's a good lead into my first reader question. I want to fit a couple in before I let you go. This is from Reader SVT. As someone new to anarcho-capitalism, I'm unsure exactly how property rights and the non-aggression principle would be enforced in a stateless society. If government is theoretically that force that compels someone to go to court for a crime or a dispute or what have you, then how in an ANCAP society would someone be compelled to go to court to solve something? You know, if someone robs somebody, what's going to make them go to court and state their case? Why can't they just say, ha ha, I got away with it. I got your stuff. Who's going to make me go to court? Right, that's a very good question, and that's uh, this is the first time that one's been raised. I would uh, offer two answers. Every robbery occurs on private property, because all property would be private in the anarchist system. Uh, so let's suppose that this person gets robbed on my street. Well, uh, I've got cops on my street, and uh, if uh, somebody robs somebody else... Part of the reason people patronize my street in the first place, I got cops and they're going to grab you. And they're not going to be busy stopping drugs and stopping pornography and stopping sex, uh, uh, voluntary sex like prostitution. They're going to be stopping this sort of a thing. Again, let's get back to Disney World. They've got private cops there. Uh, you know, in the U.S., there are more private cops than public cops right now. So the private cops will do it. That's one answer. The other answer is, you know, we do have anarchy between countries. Anarchy means that there's no authority above you. Well, what's the relationship of Canada and Costa Rica? Is there any government above them? No. Therefore, they are in a state of anarchy. What's the relationship of Australia and Poland? What's the relationship of China and Israel? What's the relationship of, I don't know, New Zealand and Portugal? It's anarchism. Unless we have a world government, which, thank God, we don't have. So the people who are fighting anarchy really are espousing world government. But the problem with world government, you know, if, if it was democratic, the Indians and the Chinese would pretty much run it and you know, we'd take all of our money and, and we'd all ship our wealth over to India and China. Nobody wants world government. 
Well, if you don't want world government for the world, why do you want U.S. government for the United States? Why do you want Montanan government for the Montanans? Why, why do you want the Chicago government for the Chicagoans? Uh, government is per se an evil abomination. According to Rummel, uh, governments in the 20th century killed 173 million people, uh, and that's not wars. That's just killing their own people. Uh, with wars of government, it, you know, it goes into the stratosphere. So look, yes, there'd be uh, hoodlums around, and, and maybe the private cops wouldn't catch them all. But they're going to catch more than the public cops who are busy sleeping off or taking graft or God knows what, or uh, stopping victimless crimes. So no one says that there'll be perfection, just that it'll be a lot better from a utilitarian point and from a deontological or rights-based point what the government does, you know, this guy, this question is worrying about muggers. Well, the government is a mugger. Didn't the government tax this guy? And aren't taxes theft? I mean, taxes are compulsory payments. So right from the get-go, the government is a mugger. And, and this guy's worrying about muggers, and he wants to embrace government? Give me a break. Now, I want to get back to one more question about Austrian economics. This is a question that was passed along to me by a former guest on the podcast, Shane Whistler, who is the author of the book Reason and Liberty. He passed along this question because he's a libertarian who doesn't really subscribe to Austrian economics. He doesn't see it as valuable or important, and he passed this along. As someone who's been to college and taken various scientific and engineering courses, I have learned the value of many different intellectual disciplines in answering questions I can't answer without them. For example, I can compute the output voltage of a given complex circuit, which would be impossible without sophisticated circuit theory. But I have never been able to figure out what good Austrian economics is on this count. What can you do with Austrian economics that I can't do equally well without it? What questions, particularly those urgent to libertarianism, can it answer that I can't answer just as well using classical economics and natural rights philosophy? I mean, basically he's saying, isn't Adam Smith and classic liberalism enough? Isn't John Locke enough? Like, why is Austrian economics relevant at all? Well, that's a very uh, fair question, a very good question, and let's kick this guy out of the movement for daring to ask questions, <laughs> because we're a cult, and we, we don't answer questions. How dare he? Yeah, how dare he? Who the hell does he think uh, questioning us? I mean, aren't we the genius? Okay, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Yeah, for those without their sarcasm detectors on, that was sarcasm. <laughs> okay, let me let me try to answer the question. I was sarcastic, so if this is if somebody's reading this, let them read the fact that I just said I was kidding <laughs> or I was sarcastic. There, uh, there are lots of things that Austrianism brings to the table that the mainstream doesn't. Central planning. Look, uh, what's his name? Uh, Samuelson was a mainstream economist, and he wrote in the 70s and the 80s, right before the USSR went belly up. He wrote that the USSR is going to catch up to the United States in terms of uh, per capita income. You read Mises on socialism, and you just start laughing at that. We have a depression in the 1930s, and we have a, a great recession or a depression now, and you've got people like Bernanke and Yellen and Greenspan in charge. Greenspan is a disgrace. He, he, he knew of Mises, and yet he, uh, he's a traitor to the, to the cause. So forget about Greenspan. But uh, the mainstream doesn't know how to deal with that. Austrian economics, Austrian business cycle theory is the only correct analysis of why we have depressions and recessions and why we have uh, inflation and unemployment or stagflation, which the mainstream can't even explain. Austrian economics is the only one that says that it's a necessary law that when you have a minimum wage law, you're going to have unemployment of unskilled workers, whereas the mainstream thinks it's an empirical issue that's open for dispute, whereas Austrian is very clear that it's not. 
Another area is antitrust. Uh, the mainstream uh, supports antitrust because they think that there's such a thing as free market monopoly, whereas Austrians have shown that there's not. So uh, th this is just uh, the tip of the iceberg. There are dozens of issues where Austrians disagree with the mainstream economists, and the mainstream economists are wrong, and, and we're right. Obviously, I can't go into all of them. Maybe I'll come on your show again and, and discuss some more of them. But those would be some of my answers to this very important question. We're going to kick them out of the libertarian movement for <laughs> daring to ask this question. Well, we certainly would like to have you back. And I think that kind of goes to what you are saying before. Like, not every libertarian is necessarily going to be an Austrian economist or someone that studies Austrian economics. You know, a lot of libertarians have many other interests, and they simply have that moral view for whatever reasons they came to it. And that's great. We're thrilled with that. But for those that are interested in Austrian economics, it is a very valuable and useful tool for refuting a lot of, of mainstream positions that also happen to be anti-libertarian positions, too. So it helps us kind of see that asteroid, helps point out why the asteroid's bad so we can maybe more effectively make our argument to a wider group of people that, hey, we should actually stop the asteroid. <laughs> right. Very well said. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks so much. And before you go, Dr. Block, can you just quickly lay out how people can get a hold of you, how people can um, find your work and keep up with your current writing? Well, just Google me, Walter Block. Uh, you'll find a lot of stuff on me or WalterBlock.com. Uh, get my webpage. I'm a professor at Loyola University. I'm always looking for students. Uh, if you know of any freshman students or transfer students who want to study with me and my entire economics department, which is very free market oriented and very Austrian, uh, I think we're the only university on the planet that has five out of five, 100% Austro-Libertarian uh, faculty. Come on down to New Orleans. The water is fine. Uh, just be careful about Audubon Park because it's a public park. And also, <laughs> we have public streets. But we're working on that. Dr. Walter Block, thank you again for coming on the Lions of Liberty podcast, and we will be back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetobenation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on thenewamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion, and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4.30 p.m. Pacific on thenewamericanmedia.com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, guys, welcome back. I had a great chat today with Walter Block, someone who's been involved with the liberty movement for a very long time. He's got a lot of stories, and we will be sure to have him back on to hear more from him. And you know, it was really interesting that he came to libertarianism through socialism. Of all people, this hardcore, one of the most hardcore anarcho-capitalists you're ever going to meet or talk to, Dr. Walter Block, was originally a socialist. And he came to libertarianism because he was came to go heckle and, and boo and hiss Ayn Rand. And it's really funny. Ayn Rand just keeps coming up. And last week it was Chris Rossini who, you know, he brought up how Ayn Rand kind of broke him out of his Republican conservative point of view and showed him that there was a kind of a different path, just as, you know, her work broke Walter Block out of his socialist point of view. And, you know, Ayn Rand may not have been, you know, quote unquote, pure libertarian, but, you know, in, in Walter Block's spectrum, which he described, she certainly fits into this liberty stuff we're talking about anyway. Because libertarianism appeals to everyone, and we should appeal to everyone. Individual liberty, it's about ideas. 
Individual liberty is great for everybody. But it's important not to become cultish. As you heard from Walter Block, the Ayn Rand movement did become cultish. It became something where, you know, you either support Ayn Rand everything she says, every position she takes. You can only read certain books. Now, we have an article about this up that I did a few weeks ago. I will post it on the website. Murray Rothbard on the cult of Ayn Rand. And, you know, it's important that we don't just have a dogmatic view. Now, of course, we should have principles, and we have principles that we try to develop and try to, you know, understand further, but that's different from excommunicating someone and saying, you're not a libertarian, you're not part of our movement. You know, libertarianism should be something that's all-encompassing. It should be something where we can we can kind of pick allies with anyone that agrees with us. Like I spoke with Daniel McAdams a few weeks ago. You know, Ron Paul and the Ron Paul Institute is allied with Dennis Kucinich, who, you know, is probably not aligned with what a lot of libertarians think about monetary policy or, you know, uh, government involvement in healthcare and stuff like that. He's a socialist on many issues, but he's really good on the war issue. So we combine with him on that. You know, it's important to stress the issues, not certain people, not personalities. Now, we come on and we criticize Rand Paul, like we did last week in our talk. And, you know, we criticized Milton Friedman two weeks ago when we were talking to Glenn Jacobs. Milton Friedman came up with the whole payroll check withholding scheme. You know, this is certainly not a libertarian thing. But even Walter Block can include Milton Friedman in this kind of broad spectrum of libertarian thought. And the point is, when we criticize these people, we're criticizing their specific positions. We're criticizing Rand Paul's support of sanctions on Iran. We criticize Milton Friedman's position on money, (laughs) the Fed controlling the money. We criticize his position on payroll tax withholding, stuff like that. But we're not excommunicating anybody. And there's a very important difference. And to realize that criticize, yes, by all means, yes, criticize, but do not exclude. There is a major difference. Guys, thanks so much for joining me this week on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Don't forget to check out the website, too. We're not just a podcast, lionsofliberty.com. we got so many features every Monday, Mondays with Murray, every Friday, Felony Friday, and a whole bunch of fun stuff in between. Also, hey, I know you're busy. Come sign up for our weekly digest. It's in the upper right-hand corner of the website. You can't miss it. All you got to do is enter your email, hit join, And every Friday, you'll get a little gift in your inbox from the Lions of Liberty. All our articles from the week delivered directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty, Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can even add us to your playlist on the Stitcher radio app. Check that out. It's a really cool little app. You can make your own little radio station. And hey, Lions of Liberty may be the flagship show on your station. You can start right now. We'll be taking a brief hiatus from the podcast for a couple weeks while I fine-tune a couple things. Make sure your listening experience is as pleasurable as possible. But hey, it's a great opportunity to go back and check out old episodes. LionsofLiberty.com slash podcast. You can find the entire archive, every episode, one through nine. We've had some great guests. Stephen Kinsella, Shane Whistler, Dan Johnson, a panda, CRZ, a great libertarian running for mayor in Minneapolis. Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute, Glenn Jacobs, Dr. Mark Thornton, Chris Rossini. I think I've named them all. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We'll see you in a few weeks. And remember, live long and live free.